0: Michael McCauley of the Trio Restaurants, beverage director and partner. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here.
1: So where'd you grow up? I grew up just outside of Center City, Philadelphia, in a place called East Falls. A little rough and tough neighborhood for sure. You know, grew up with a single mother, 35th in Allegheny, for those Philadelphians listening. And I had an opportunity to move out of there for high school to a marginally better neighborhood. In and at, at that point, I stumbled upon a job when I was 16 at a fine dining restaurant called Jake's Restaurant, which is still there on Main Street today. And I was brought into the world of fine wine and serious cuisine. Your family
0: wasn't drinking a lot of wine or going out a lot before that?
1: No, not not unless we consider Mad Dog 2020 uh, a flavor. No, we, we were in a neighborhood that was devoid of any, you know, food culture and certainly any, any wine culture.
0: How did you end up at the restaurant? I mean, coincidence or you had a plan to go into
1: restaurants? No plan to go in the restaurants. My plan was to become a teacher and I stumbled into the restaurant. It was hired on the spot, I was asked by the maitre d' Robert Pearson to, uh, show up that night and get a bow tie. So I lied and said I had one and the rest is history. He showed up and, um, uh, the chef was married to the maitre d'. Uh, she was real hard nosed, very tough, but very intelligent. drank You know, she loved her red wine, smoked unfiltered camels. She would throw you out of the kitchen if you would not try her food. And so I learned very quickly a sense of discipline and a sense that I better get over any concerns I had of eating foie gras and oysters and she kind of threw me into that world very quickly she set the tone and i was i was there to oblige and her husband was the maitre d he was the sommelier it was interesting working for a husband and wife where you'd walk into the dining room and it was his world and you walked into the kitchen and boom it was her world and you had a sort of dance back and forth between those two worlds at Jake's restaurant at the time The executive chef was also the owner, Bruce Cooper. And, you know, he's a real sharp-minded business owner, certainly taught me a lot about the discipline of running business and working hard, you know, working with servers and bartenders that traveled, that knew wine, that knew food, that were not necessarily serving and bartending in order to do something else. But to, they loved it. They made great money. They loved it. You know, one of the The head servers named James Dominic, he traveled to Italy every year, and he always inspired me to do the same. He was a Montessori teacher, and he would bring me books, and he would show me maps of Italy. And he got me really inspired in sort of the culture and the arts of food and wine.
0: So you connected first on the education side, because you were thinking about being a teacher, and here was this guy that was a teacher.
1: Right. He was a teacher But he also worked with food and wine. He got to travel. He got to get out of the neighborhood. He got to get out of the neighborhood. And work for me was the way out of the neighborhood. I saw that very early on. I saw that I can make a living. But I also saw that I could get away. I mean, frankly, in the beginning, the fact that I would get staff meal at work was the perk. You know, It it was like, all right, I'm going to get a great meal tonight. I'm going to make enough money to last through the week. And I get to work with a lot of really cool people. And at
0: the same time, maybe it's funner to be at work where they really appreciate you for working hard than to be at home when there's not so much going on at home.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was definitely, a, I would call it a safe haven. You know, I never would think of work that way until that point. But when I walked in those doors, I knew, you know, I was safe. I was going to get food and I was going to get money. And they were going to look after me. And, and that was a big, big thing for me as a young man uh, growing up. And there were a lot of other people around me that were, I know, feeling the same way.
0: So what was Jake's like? I mean, as a restaurant, what was it like?
1: It was a fine dining restaurant. You know, higher-end wine program with a bent on the French side. And it was definitely one of the busiest restaurants in Philadelphia at that point. This was in the 1990s. And... It was a vibrant restaurant. It was a vivacious restaurant at the time. And I was fortunate that I, I went on that job interview and not another job interview. And that sort of changed the course of my entire life.
0: Because originally you'd had the intention to go to school, become a teacher, and instead you became a restaurant partner.
1: Exactly. So it was was not the, not the plan. Ultimately, it was about, all about education still. And it was about learning. And it was about culture in the same way that if I were to study english or study history eventually you know down the line I was able to open a wine school and I've taught over 5000 students about wine so you know I did become the teacher that I wanted to become just in a different subject matter
0: working as a busser at jake's what was the progression into wine i mean what happened that you got on the wine track
1: the wine was totally by accident it was a friday afternoon i was helping to put Wine delivery away in the basement of Jake's restaurant. I was by myself, and I was always enamored by bottles. You know, I was looking. I remember it was like Ducru Beaucaillou and the embossed Bordeaux bottle, and unwrapping each bottle. And 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 many of our wines came in wooden boxes. So just the art of cracking open a wooden box and taking each wine out and unwrapping them. It looked like a present. Yeah, it was a present. It was so cool. We, I was putting the wine away. And we had magnums on the top shelf. And I must have jumbled the shelf, and a magnum of Claude Alambre 83 fell off and cracked me square in my eyebrow above my left eye. It fell to the floor, and I caught it with my foot. I was a hockey goalie and a soccer goalie, so that, that might have helped. And it rolled, and I thought, oh, my God, if a wine rolls on the floor, does that ruin the wine? I, I was nervous to tell the maitre d', the, the manager Robert Pearson... I picked up the bottle, it was a little scratched, and I noticed that I was bleeding down on my blue Oxford shirt. And I said, oh my God, it's Friday afternoon, I'm going to get fired here. I ruined the wine, and I might have to go to the hospital. And Sure enough, I, I walk up the, the long cellar stairs to the dining room, and as soon as I open the door, the maitre d, sommelier Robert Pearson is standing there in his white tuxedo with his big beard, and he just chastises me. And it's so upset that I have to go to the hospital on Friday afternoon before service. So a server uh, named Paul Mass takes me, drops me off. I get a few stitches in the eye, head home, press another blue Oxford shirt, rush back to work. Maybe it's seven, seven thirty at this point. And I walk in and we're, we literally have a line out the door with reservations. I jump on the floor and I just get in there and try to you know, help save the day. And Robert Pearson was so, you know, Robert was was so uh, happy that I came back and didn't think that I would. He said, you can drink anything you want tonight. And I never had a glass of wine, never tasted wine. How old were you? I was 16.
0: It's like, it'll it'll dull
1: the pain. Yeah, exactly. It was like 16, 17. And I'm thinking, um, you know, I wanted to study history. And I was always enamored on the back bar shelf. We had 1908 Justino Boal Madeira, 1933, 1934. And I said, great, you know, I, I want the 1908 Madeira. I'm a pre-war man. Yeah, I'm a pre-war man. And, you know, Robert was upset. It was one of the most expensive things we were pouring at the time, right? He thought maybe I would go for a glass of white Zin or something.
0: This kid's got an <laughs> eye for value. <laughs>
1: right, exactly. Uh, so great bartender, one of the best ever, Jimmy Campbell. He, he polishes up some Riedel's demware and puts it out at the end of the shift. Pours us each a taste of the 1908 Madeira. And I take it and I shoot it back. Like a shot, right? And, and Robert, again, you know, what are you doing? You're supposed to smell the wine and savor the wine. Uh, what do you taste? And having dabbled in the kitchen a little, I, I picked up, I just made my first, like, cappuccino. So I picked up kind of an espresso-y, roasty, toasty note. I made creme brulee. So I picked up some notes from the creme brulee. And Robert said, well, you got a pretty good palate. Um, in fact, I'm going to put you in charge of wine training with me. Every Saturday, I need you to show up early. You're gonna help polish glasses, crack bottles open, pour staple materials. And every Saturday, I, you know, would steal a few tastes of Bordeaux and Burgundy, and um, I would take the reading material. And as other kids on the bus going to school were reading their homework, I, w- I was reading Bordeaux and Burgundy uh, because it fascinated me, partially because of all the disciplines involved. You know, there's marketing, there's business, there's science. And wine represented more of a, a total learning experience for me, and, and that's I think what kept me involved from day one and what keeps me involved today. There was a lot in there: right. history, sales. It was anything that you you want in a true liberal arts education. It was all there, um, represented in this one cool product, wine. And these people at the restaurant, they liked you. You know, I think they liked me. Uh, they. They promoted me uh, into serving. I was the youngest server at this fine dining restaurant. The chef actually, Marge, she came to me and said, you know, I think you should be the assistant general manager. I think you should be the maitre d' on my husband's nights off. And, you know, she believed in me. The owner of Jake's, Bruce Cooper, you know, I had no suits to wear when they promoted me. I had no ties, dress shirts. Bruce took me to a store and he got me uh, three blue suits and I remember him saying, um, we have to get you a red tie because a red tie signifies some power and if you're going to be the maitre d' at the door, you got to have a red tie on and a blue suit and that's what he did and you know, it was pretty, pretty powerful and, and something that we still talk about today.
0: They gave you responsibility. They
1: gave me responsibility, they gave me trust um, and they gave me education. You know, at the, at the same time.
0: By the time you're making it to major d', you're making decisions and directing people. You're not just being directed.
1: It, it was, I think, a little trickier even at that time because the, most servers and bartenders on the floor were o- much older than me, if not twice my age. They were all professionals. They had homes and children and they've traveled. And, you know, here I am telling them what to do or working on their schedule. So, I was supported by them, and that that was like a huge learning experience: how to work with and then manage a group that's more mature than you.
0: And it was probably an older clientele coming in, being much, like, "I want that table over there. Why are you trying to seat me here?"
1: Much older clientele, very demanding clientele. Um, you know, I'm happy to say that I'm still friends with the clientele, some of them today. But man, very very demanding clientele at that restaurant and it taught me the real essence of hospitality. The, the first guest to ever give me a tip, a side tip, was on New Year's Eve and I was 16 years old. His name was David Schlossberg, and he gave me, I don't know, five or 10 bucks as a side tip and, because I got him extra bread. And, and it kind of clicked in my head at that moment, like, hey, if I follow the needs here of, of these guests, you know, I'm gonna benefit from that. And, um, I'm still friends with David today. And we, we still tell that story of how I got him bread and he took care of me.
0: That was the most expensive bread that guy ever <laughs> yeah, bought. Exactly, But I mean, you could do
1: the hours. I could do the hours working at Jake's was a little tough going to school at the same time because you know, you're getting done work late, but the benefits were amazing. You know, again, you got made good money, staff meal and a, a learning experience. Work was way more important to school than school to me at that point.
0: And you were making good money compared to the kids in your neighborhood and you could dress well and you could look good at school when maybe the, the home side wasn't going to provide that for you on its own.
1: Right. The home side wasn't going to provide it. And in fact, if you know, if I wanted new sneakers, I had to earn the money to get the new sneakers. So it, it was um, not only nice to be able to get the money, but it was actually critical to be able to get the money at that point. So for sure. That job saved the day in, in my world. And so where did that
0: lead you? I mean, you were there for a decade. What happened next?
1: I decided that I wanted to work in Center City. You know, that was kind of the step up. I decided that I wanted to go for more formal wine education in New York City. So I, I moved from Maniunk into Center City. And I was, I was wooed by Chef George Perrier and his management to come to LeBec Fin and get ready to open up Rosary Perriot, which was a, a big deal restaurant on on Walnut Street. It was his more casual place. More yeah, his more casual place. And yeah, it was a big deal. He's a legend. He is a legend in Philadelphia. And and it was, you know, it it felt really good to be to be contacted by them and say, hey, if you ever want to come into center city, we'd really love you to be a part of our opening team. You know, that that was pretty impressive to me. And and I jumped at it. Left Jake's after a long, long time, went to Brasier Perrier and entered, you know, even a more dynamic world of of wine service, certainly spirit service, and went to school in New York at the same time. So I would take the bus up, go to WSET classes before they were available in Philadelphia. I did Sommelier Society classes. You know, I was fortunate at that moment. This was. Maybe 1997, 1998, that the Sommelier Society classes were taught by Andre Emmer, were taught by Roger Dagorn, You know, amazing stars in the Sommelier world were my teachers at that time. You know, Daniel Jonas. You know, it was an amazing, an amazing moment where I walk into a classroom and Andre Emmer is teaching about Burgundy.
0: The restaurants had sponsored you to go to these courses.
1: Yeah, I got sponsored to go to New York. It was great. Every time that I went for a class, I think they were on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I also would try a new restaurant. You know, I'd pop into the bar, try have a glass of wine, look at the menu, uh, meet the staff, and that that was also kind of part of the education at that point.
0: So you could kind of bring it back not only into the city and say like, hey, what was I doing this weekend? Oh, I was, I was in New York. But you could also bring that into your own service persona. You could be like, oh, I saw this move. New York where the maitre d' did this buster did that I thought it was cool you kind of witnessed what was going down
1: absolutely and I became sort of the the storyteller you know at the restaurant and said oh man that you know the maitre d' at Balthazar he did this really cool thing or I was at Boulay and the service staff did this and it was amazing or we tasted this and we would think about that Uh, I would bring menus back of course as well but that was, you know, that was certainly the education there was, you know, being in New York twice a week, going out to eat, being taught by these amazing sommeliers, and then coming back and trying to bring that to the table, um, literally, in Philadelphia.
0: So you were at breast Street, and how'd that go?
1: You know, it ended up being a little more formal than everyone thought going in, but an amazing group of people that were essentially kind of poached from the top places in Philadelphia, the team was incredible the first year in particular. I, I stayed there maybe a year, year and a half. I went back to Jake's restaurant to help Bruce Cooper open novelty restaurant in Old City. I did that for a couple years. Um, they had another restaurant they wanted to open. Yeah, they opened a restaurant, a more casual restaurant in Old City, which did really well for the first few years, um, you know until 9/11 and then business kind of went down after that.
0: But you were kind of maybe in the mood to go back to family a little bit in terms of that restaurant group and to maybe do something a little more casual.
1: Yeah, it was it was very much like when I went there the first time when I was 16. I was in a tough place in my family and Bruce and the whole crew there really embraced me and took care of me. Now, over a decade later, uh, my mom had a brain aneurysm and she got sick and I couldn't balance... I couldn't balance working at Brasere, going to Psalm school and living in center city. I had to move back home to take care of my mom. And, and Bruce said, well, you can work any schedule you want, come back and help me open this restaurant. So he gave me that opportunity to work a very flexible schedule. I took care of my mom and was able to work for him for another two to three years. So how'd that go? It, It was great. I mean, I got to, I got to open a restaurant as the general manager and as the beverage director for the first time. And it was a dynamic restaurant. It was a progressive wine list, great crew. It was Jake's, but done more casually. It was Old City, Philadelphia, but a a center city clientele.
0: What are those two things? I mean, I'm not from here, so.
1: Old City is the historic area of Philadelphia. We were on third in market, so right in the smack of the historic area, so. Lots of tourists coming through, lots of hotel action, but also center city clientele would pop in because it's a beautiful neighborhood. So I worked there, and one day when I was there, a f- famous Philadelphia photographer, David Field, popped in, and I noticed that he was looking at um, he was looking at some construction plans for a restaurant, and he started you know chatting to me about that and said you know I have this amazing chef from uh, Elbuí in Spain. He's here, and I, I really want to do a modern restaurant in Rittenhouse Square, and I would love if you ran it. And he showed me the blueprint. It was, it was pretty sharp. It was kind of inspired by Jule Bacco in uh, New York. David's a big sushi fan and would go there quite often.
0: Kind of like that tunnel kind yeah, of effect. Yeah, that tunnel.
1: How do you deal with a super small space and make it look bigger? We thought that they did a great job there with the tunnel effect, and we had the same issue in a very, very small 35-seat restaurant in Rittenhouse Square. We opened that to great acclaim. It was an amazingly progressive wine list. What year was that? That was about 2002. Post 9/11. Yeah, post 9/11. Yeah, 2002, 2003, and that restaurant did well for the first year or so. You know, at that point, I was becoming, I was traveling more. I, I had some opportunities to go to Europe, and I started to work with winemakers more in the vineyard. More with their family, and I started to feel not not really satisfied in the fine dining world. I felt like it was a little too aristocratic I felt like it was a little too you know I felt like the fine dining world was starting to become a dinosaur
0: especially post nine eleven
1: post nine eleven i mean that was a that was a game changer it um it again it changed everything right
0: somehow too formal felt wrong in a time when community was important
1: right and you know, so I, I said, I'm, I'm going to get out of fine dining. And I started my own little consulting company called MSM Hospitality. Um, right away, I had, you know, upwards of 10 clients. I was doing wine dinners, I was helping them with beverage costs and food costs and training the staff. And my now partner and the founder of TRIA, John Myro, he reached out to me and said, I heard you're doing some consulting. Can you meet me for coffee? I have this idea. I'm, his idea was basically to have wine chill out a little, to have beer grow up, and to focus only on fermented products. So um, he wanted to open a, a bar basically that didn't have any liquor, you know, which was, which was crazy in, in Philadelphia because liquor licenses are not cheap. So he wanted to focus on wine, beer, cheese, have a cider presence, mead. And in 2004, I helped open Tria, but where
0: was he coming from with that idea like he'd seen something in Europe or
1: the truth is he had a party and he used to own a restaurant called Polaroso that was outside the city that I used to actually like to go to it had you know he was doing craft beer before anyone else he had a really cool southern italian wine list at the time the food was great he ended up selling that restaurant and he was running a big restaurant group he went back to school got his MBA And he was having a party, and the party was quite simple. They were playing really cool music. It was very casual. They had charcuterie out, olives, cool wine, great beer, cheese. And a guest at the party said, man, this would be a great restaurant. Just like all this stuff that's at this party, just do this as a restaurant. And John, you know, a light bulb went off in his head, and he said, all right, let's do it.
0: Because what was happening was... There was a lot of formal restaurants in Philadelphia, but there was maybe a new generation of younger people saying, I don't, I don't need all this formality. I was just looking for a bite to eat and maybe a good beer.
1: Right. At the time, if you wanted to get a nice glass of wine, you had to go to a fancy restaurant. And when you went to that fancy restaurant, you had to dress a certain way, and you, you felt like you had to have a certain income to go there.
0: You had to pretend to be somebody else.
1: Right. And if you didn't know about wine... You know, oh my God, you would go there, you would feel maybe talked down to. So Tria was more egalitarian in that instead of that aristocratic restaurant approach, we wanted the guests to dictate what they wanted to do. Kind of like a grown-up coffee shop. If a guest wanted to stop in and have a coffee and read a book, they could do it. If they wanted to meet friends for a glass of wine, they can do it. It was really, the spirit was... You know, again, post 9-11, the spirit was about community and about sharing the culture of wine, cheese, and beer.
0: But no hard booze, so maybe less of a fratty kind of scene or less of a bar scene.
1: Less of a bar scene. You know, in fact, our our first guest in 2004 walked in, Rittenhouse Square ordered a Cosmopolitan, right? It's a bar. Why wouldn't you have a Cosmopolitan? Um, We let them know that we serve wine, cheese, and beer. And... We recommended a Creek beer, a Lambic, and they said, no, thank you, and walked out. And John and I looked at one another like, well, it's not too late to go get some booze. You know, <laughs> yeah, this at, might at be hard. Store, right? yeah. uh, but then it grew, and then it became, you know if you were a lover of beer or a lover of wine, you were in an environment that wasn't being distracted by other things. You could come there. You could relax. became quieter, calmer, and you weren't sitting next to someone having a gin and tonic. Everyone in that room was interested in beer or wine. And it was great because you have maybe the, the woman that you're dating is really interested in wine and you love beer. So there was a lot of dates and a lot of f- family and Tria was really embraced by the community within the first year. Within that first year, we got busy. And John and I discussed, you know, it's about time that I become a partner. So I dissolved the consulting company and, and John and I became partners in the first year or so. Yeah.
0: But that was also during a period of time where Rittenhouse Square was starting to change too, right?
1: Rittenhouse Square was starting to change at that time. You know, one of the trendsetters was certainly Neil Stein, who opened Rouge. You know, he's the first person to dig up his sidewalk and put a beautiful sidewalk down because he wanted outdoor seating. He was a big advocate for outdoor seating. And previous to that, there wasn't any in Philadelphia. So Rouge had outdoor seating beautiful sidewalk and it start to change the dynamic that you could sit outside and watch the park you know watch Rittenhouse square Rittenhouse square really really blew up at that point
0: because now it's the place i mean
1: now of. it's the place i mean in reality in 2003 2004 you know as we opened Tria in 2004 but as john was looking at properties in 2003 the original Tria was an ice cream store called alaska cafe it was still a little sh- a little shady a couple blocks off of Rittenhouse Square. And to walk around at night was a little scary in Center City. So as you got more outdoor dining, the lighting on the street increased, the presence on the street increased, and it got safer. And guests felt comfortable, you know, hanging outside. And, you know, within that first year, Tree got really, really busy. And, um, yeah, the rest is history.
0: So you were doing a lot of the wine-focused side, and your partner was really bringing the craft beer side.
1: Yeah, John was doing the craft beer, um, very progressive beer list, beer education. Um, with his background in business, he did a lot of the business stuff and analytics. I did more HR and more wine training.
0: Because you had the management side. You yeah, didn't the, come from that.
1: Right. And I had more of the management side and more of the fine dining service experience. So working on the floor with the staff was sort of my critical role. John and I took turns you know, opening the restaurant and closing the restaurant until business grew enough where we could you know, hire a manager to do so. Um, but yeah, that was our, our kind of day-to-day split. Is he focused a little bit more on the numbers and beer. I focused on wine, HR training.
0: So what was HR training like? I mean, when you hired people for this more casual, kind of grown-up coffee shop, as you said, I mean, who was coming to apply for that job?
1: It wasn't real professional, uh, super experienced service staff. The I think the common thread from then until now has been, the applicants have been people that are just really, really interested in learning. That's our forte, is that if you come to Trader, we will train you on wine, cheese, and beer and service, more so than any other restaurant. So I think it was, you know, like some of the things that we look for and look for them were curiosity, a hunger to learn more about wine or beer. If you had a desire for that, you were going to do good by the guests.
0: So if you were a regular person with an interest, mm-hmm. you could do well at this restaurant.
1: If you're a regular person with an interest, you could do well. We're going to train you on the steps of service. So even if you don't have a lot of experience, you're going to get the proper education here at Trio.
0: And at the same time, you're in Philadelphia, and the wine store culture, the retail culture that drives a lot of the education in other cities for wine isn't really present here.
1: Right. We're state-controlled here through the PLCB. So there isn't that culture of a guest you know, popping into a wine shop that's independently owned and chatting up the staff or the owner. There's no specialized wine stores, um, like there are in New York. So Tria became kind of the, the hangout for wine enthusiasts to basically chat and talk. But here you are talking to a server or a bartender or a manager that's really into it. That's actually doing, you know, active tasting and learning every week. And that still is happens today is there's, really a conversation that's going on about what we're interested in. And basically we don't try to sell that to the guests. We try to share it. You know, we're psyched about, you know, wines from the Alto Pimonte and we're going to share that love with you as a guest. And I think the, the guests over time over the last decade love to just come in and, and chat us up because they don't have the ability to do that at a wine store here.
0: And at the same time, the staff is finding an opportunity for education that feels like they're being invested in.
1: Right. In lieu of doing traditional advertising, we put our money into the staff. So we, we have a pretty solid farm system at TRIA where if you want to grow in the restaurant industry, in the hospitality industry, we will invest in you. And we'll believe in you. But it's going to be hard. And the staff that come here at TRIA – they know that they're going to get invested, in it, and I think that's the that's the main thing that differentiates Tria from a lot of other restaurants.
0: And it kind of mirrors your own experience of restaurants.
1: It does, yeah. You know, coming to think of that, it's exactly what happened to me, yeah. And I never really thought of it that way. I, you know, I want to I want to do what the community at Jake's did for me, and it feels really good. I mean, I would say at the end of the day, that is the. That's the coolest thing about what we do is we get to invest in a lot of of young people that maybe don't know what to do with the rest of their lives. And they're here, and we're going to give them an education, just like I got at Jake's. We're going to give them opportunity, just like I got at Jake's. And we're going to give them maybe a glimpse into the culture, a greater culture in the world that they might not be getting in college or might not be getting in another type of job. So, you know, I love to see TRIA staff grow, and I love to see even if they leave us, they grow into other, you know, other fields. But
0: it probably gives you some staff retention if you're training people a lot.
1: It does. I mean, from a numbers point, the money that we invest in the staff certainly comes back. We get retention. But I think the most important thing is we get consistency. You know, they stay with us for a longer period of time and their service standards are consistent. Their knowledge base is consistent. So for a guest, they get the TRIA experience.
0: They're not coming in finding the new guy that's been on the bar for a week who doesn't know the wines.
1: Exactly. You know, a lot of restaurants invest wisely in initial training. We invest in initial training in a big way. But the difference is ongoing training. So... 50 weeks out of the year we meet with the entire staff for an hour and a half and we talk about wine, cheese, beer, food and service. And every week the staff takes a test on what we tasted the week before. And that makes all the difference in the world for what we do. I mean, you if you're not interested personally in your life in wine, cheese, beer, food, service, you're not going to last that long at Tria because it's too intense. It's a natural sorting process. Right. Our process, you know, sorts out staff that aren't going to be a good fit for us.
0: And at the same time, it gives you a bench for expansion in terms of staff.
1: Right. You know, the fact is, you're, you know, you're not going to get dozens of applicants that are super well trained and have, you know, amazing experience coming in. What we look for is, again, they're curious, if they're hungry for knowledge, if they're nice, you know, if they have that natural bent towards hospitality, if they smile, you know, that's a big thing for us. And then we'll give you the rest. And yeah, if we want to grow the TRIA concept, it has to be based around this kind of consistent experience of education and hospitality.
0: Because you've opened up a couple other venues.
1: We've opened up four locations in the last decade. The most recent two locations were Tria Taproom and Tria Fittler Square. Taproom was a little bit of a different
0: concept for you.
1: You know, our service standards are the same. You know, we really focus on staff education and, and our service standards there. But we wanted to, do, wanted to do a couple things. We wanted to kind of turn the tables a little and have a greater focus on beer than wine and really have kind of like a temple for great beer in Philadelphia and Philadelphia is a great beer town. We went to a green certified restaurant and our biggest pitfall at the other trias is, is that we throw out tons of bottles. So we were like, let's go all draft. So we'll do draft cider, draft craft, soda, all draft wine, draft beer. Uh, we put in a wood fire grill and we use all reclaimed materials in the building process. Tap Room, you know, when we were first trying to open it, there wasn't really, at least in Pennsylvania, a great selection of wine on tap. There was a lot of kind of affordable, plunky, cheap wine out there in keg, but that was never really... My vision was to put quality wine in keg. In fact, it's a cleaner process. It's going to taste really, really fresh. And now it's blown up. I mean, now we could get anything. You know, I, I could get a Greek white wine... We work with a lot of local producers also to keg, uh, whether it be in the Finger Lakes, in Long Island, in Pennsylvania.
0: So inside of two years, the market for what's available on keg has changed a lot.
1: And the wine sales are great. The wine sales are, are higher than we ever thought with 12 wines. you know, We we try to represent the world of wine in 12 draft wines. So you can, can do, do
0: some volume on
1: those, those taps? We can do some volumes on the taps. You know, it's even opened up into we've sold Manzanilla Sherry on tap. We have Basque Vermouth on tap right now. Uh, we've sold multiple kegs of mead this year on tap. So it's even expanding as we speak right now, which is really cool.
0: The infrastructure of what's available from the distributor side has really changed what you can do at the restaurant.
1: Right. It's totally changed. I mean, we have Cru Beaujolais on right now. It's great. And how much have you
0: seen the TRIA program become kind of a training ground for sommeliers in the city generally? How many sommeliers that work at other restaurants have come through your training?
1: There's a lot of alumni from TRIA, you know, since we've been open for 11 years that have, let's say, graduated from TRIA and gone to other restaurants. So I see it a lot and, you know, I'm very I'm very proud of it because they are the new generation of wine professionals in in the city and beyond, which is great.
0: And what's that look like? I mean, you probably remember pre-September 11th wine sales in Philadelphia, and now you went through multiple openings in different locations of Philadelphia. You saw 2008 and the financial downturn there happen, and now you're on this side of it. So how has Philly changed as a wine market over that period of time, both in terms of staff and consumer?
1: Well, I think, One of the big things for me overall is that through this course of time, the guest has gotten more experimental. They're open to trying something that isn't just, you know, oh, it's a Napa Valley Cabernet or Chardonnay. They're open to anything. So a decade ago, what we couldn't sell, we can sell easily now. So I think the guests and the staff are more open to new things. So I, I think that's a big one. I would say one of the saving graces at Tria is that we always want to be able to offer an affordable yet authentic wine experience that's accessible. So that I think has helped us weather the storm. Like in 2008, our sales stayed high because we offered, let's say an affordable luxury. Maybe you couldn't go out for the five course uh, degustation menu But you could go to Tria, have a glass of Cremant and some cheese, and feel like you had a night out with your spouse. And I think that keeping that affordable, keeping it a great value at Tria, has been kind of the saving grace for us. And the Philadelphia guests have latched on to that.
0: And what's an accessible wine list for Philadelphia today? What do guests find accessible?
1: We always have, and and I think this has been a great technique since day one, we always have... The super seven grapes, what we call right? So having a Chardonnay, having a solid Riesling, having a great Sauvignon Blanc, having a Pinot Noir, a classic Pinot Noir, having a Cabernet Merlot blend, having a great Syrah, Syrahs or Syrah. The average guest that walks in, they know those wines, and that's something that they can work with. Then maybe they move from Pinot Noir to Grignolino, but you have to have Pinot Noir in order to sell Grignolino. So I think having the... Basic classics. You know, in our sparkling wine program, we always have a rose by the glass. We always have a methyl champenois by the glass. And we typically have a tank method by the glass. So you're able to get basic sparkling wine experience. Um, so I think you have to have some of the basics. And it doesn't mean they're dumbed down, it means that they're great examples of the classics. A mistake that you can make is making your list too esoteric. And I want, again, because we have more of an egalitarian experience at TRIA, I want a novice to be able to walk in and say, wow, this is great. This is a great glass of Malbec. And I want, you know, a super fancy wine person to come in and say, wow, this is really cool that you have Fresa or what have you. You need to be able to give the best to both of those worlds.
0: And do you see a lot of interaction between the wine and the beer cultures in Philadelphia, or are they two very different things? I ask because you serve
1: both. You know, from our perspective, I see a great interplay. Those that are interested in cool craft beer are interested people, you know, so they're interested in food. They're interested in where to go out to eat, what cool movie to go see, what play, and they're just interested people. So I think they're reading up on craft beer, and they're also reading up on, on wine.
0: So it's not that craft beer takes away from wine sales. They're related cultures.
1: They're certainly related cultures, and I think that they support one another. If Tria only focused on wine, I think it would be a very different – we would have had a very different experience over the last decade. How so? I think that it bridges the gap between men and women and interest levels. Wine does. Yeah, wine does, but having them together. So if you took a snapshot of the average party of four at Tria – One of the things that I love is you'll have one or two drinking beer and one or two having wine. And I think, again, if we didn't have one without the other, it would have changed uh, our sales over the year and certainly our experience over the year. So even at a place that's like Taproom, which has a greater emphasis on beer, like I said, the wine sales are still solid. And on any given party that you see in the restaurant, you will see wine at the table along with some of the best beer.
0: And at the same time, it allows you to cover a spread of pricing that is probably difficult if you just have wine, the way that wine is priced in Philadelphia.
1: Right. You can get a glass of beer for a great price. But I also think that a lot of guests switch back and forth. You know, the guy that comes in for lunch that has turkey sandwich and has a beer, the next night he's back with his wife and they're drinking Barolo. So I think it goes hand to hand. It's more of the, what do you want to drink at that moment of time? And it changes. So beer gives you another option, you know, as does cider.
0: And where do you see the wine scene in Philadelphia going over, say, the next five years?
1: I think what is happening is there's a lot of more, let's call them quasi-formal restaurants that have a young and progressive wine program where you don't have to dress up to go there to eat, where you can ask questions. It's a youthful restaurant culture right now that is doing some really progressive um so you'll see more natural wines more organic and biodynamic wines more restaurants that will offer intriguing selections besides just having again your your safety nets so i think the guests are open to that and uh tria you know has been a little part of opening the doors to make that happen so have a fine dining experience expressed in a casual way.
0: Sounds like in some ways that the fine dining culture that you came up in isn't really there so much anymore in Philadelphia. That it's a different kind of fine dining now. That if you were young Michael now, you would find a whole different environment of more kind of nice casual.
1: Right, nice casual. Yeah, that's a good way to... The fine dining scene as you know I knew it growing up in it, in Philadelphia, I would say is dead. Um, But what has replaced it is kind of birthed from it you know it it still has that fine dining feel it's just the execution is more casual you know you'll see uh, fewer restaurants have uniform standards and if they do they're they're more casual see more progressive food menus and more progressive wine programs so yeah if i came up in the in the world today it would be different It's, it's um you know it's like reading a modern novel versus a classic
0: but at the same time, you're still a young guy because you started young. Even though everything's changed and the, the landscape, you're still fairly young. You're not like this old man.
1: I feel like I'm just beginning right now in Philadelphia because we opened two restaurants in two years. So our staff you know, has grown. So my my ability to affect and educate and teach has also grown. And it's become more exciting having a bigger staff, basically because you have more power to effect, So I feel really kind of energized right now that we're doing a cool thing in Philadelphia at this point.
0: Michael McCauley is a longtime part of the Philadelphia restaurant scene who feels like he's just beginning. Thank you very much for being here today.
1: Thank you, appreciate it.
0: Michael McCauley of the Trio Restaurants in Philadelphia. All Drink To That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces.